It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's Geek Top 5! Yay! I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And this is the last couple of weeks or something cool is going to happen in 2016. Well, 2016 has a lot to uh, to make up for, so there better be some <laughs> cool stuff. There were. Let's jump right into it. Number 5 on the list, we saw the trailer for, Sp- I mean, you probably saw it too, for Spider-Man Homecoming. I don't think I've watched a trailer this much since the first X-Men movie trailer came out back in 1990-whatever. And it's not like it's not like this is the first time you're going to see Spider-Man on the silver screen. Quite the opposite. So that's a hell of an achievement. I mean, for those of you keeping track, Spider-Man, like the first one was 2002, then Spider-Man 2 in 04, Spider-Man 3 in 07, The Amazing Spider-Man in 2012, and The Amazing Spider-Man 2 in 20... Like, listen, he's been around! yeah. I, I and, gotta say, uh, I, I'm a bit of a defender of Spider-Man 3 and those amazing Spider-Man movies. I don't think they're as bad as people say, but, you know, Spider-Man 2 is definitely great. This, though, looks like a whole new ball game, And that's a difficult thing to do for a franchise that's already been rebooted twice in the last 12 years. So, you'd be the best to describe it than anyone. What is it about this one that makes it new compared to the last time it was new, compared to the time before that when it was new? Ha. Huh. Well, I think it's... How, ah, man, that's tough to say. I I think the fact that they seem to be focusing on him in high school. I know the first Spider-Man movie had high school stuff, and and so did Amazing Spider-Man, but it was sort of in a periphery to the the Spider-Man action. This one has more of a focus on it, and let's be honest, it's also the fact that he's interacting with Iron Man. You know, that's something that couldn't have happened in the other Spider-Man movies, and elevates this, makes it seem more important because it ties into the greater Marvel Cinematic Universe. Absolutely. I, th- I think that's also one of the big things about it. It's I wasn't able to find out too much on how that works. From what I understand, Sony and Marvel have agreed to share the rights and presumably share the profits from the movie. I think, I mean, I think the, the scuttlebutt is something like Spider-Man gets to appear in the other Marvel Cinematic movies and, and they'll make money off of that. And then Marvel gets to make these Spider-Man movies, but Sony gets the lion's share of the profits from it. So it's it's sort of a, you know, we've tried to make these movies and failed, and you're really good at making these superhero movies, so we'll let you make these. We make the money, you get to use Spider-Man in your movies, so you get to make money off of that. I mean, given what we have to work with, that doesn't sound like a bad deal. Like, it's ridiculous that Sony is letting them use their character that they already have, but seeing the, the, the licensing mess that we're in, I guess that's a good way to resolve it. So, we see this trailer, we see him, I mean, it's Tom Holland, we saw him in Civil War, he was great, loved yeah. him. If anything, loved his Peter Parker as much as I loved his Spider-Man, and that's rare. Yeah, I think that was one of the problems with the other two Spider-Man. Like, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man was great as Peter Parker, not as perfect a Spider-Man. Like, he did a good job, but to me, Spider-Man should be wisecracking, he should be more uh, uh, verbally involved with the the fight. The Andrew Garfield Spider-Man, he was a great Spider-Man, thin, wiry, was funny. funny. His Peter Parker was awful. Not Peter Parker. Tom Holland, best of both worlds. Yeah, great casting. And he actually looks like a high school student and not like a 30-year-old who's hanging around with a bunch of teenagers. Right, it's spooky, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that looks great. He's back in high school. He's coming up. It looks like the villain. Well, it looks like. We know the villain in this one is going to be the Vulture. Yeah, I, I just, you know, the, I've never been interested in the Vulture as a character. He's sort of boring. He's an old man in a weird green leotard with razor-sharp wings. He flies around and steals stuff. But there's always been this sort of quest to reclaim his youth with with that character and to have 
Michael Keaton, the original big screen Batman, playing the Vulture. There's this whole like passing of the torch, old man versus young man. I, that's not even in the trailer, but I'm just like excited at the prospect of it. I am, but I agree with you though that like the vultures always seem to kind of a like it's weird. He's a big villain in the Spider-Man universe. He's like, he was the second supervillain Spider-Man ever fought, but he's such a lame villain. Yeah, like, he's a jilted inventor, right? So yeah, he invented the wings, but he didn't get paid for it, so he went nuts. Like, that's his whole backstory. It's yeah, a pretty. He's always been more sort of interesting as a member of the Sinister Six or like a supervillain team up because his actual motivations are pretty uninteresting. So presumably that's going to get rewritten and modernized yeah. to fit in with this new movie. And we do see like the suit looks like it's, there's a lot more robot to it. He's wearing this mask looks like it's right out of Destiny, mm-hmm. um, a, a sort of cyborg kind of thing going on. So hopefully they'll they'll set it up and it'll probably be able to tie into the other marvel stuff like if he's got a robot suit that's probably why iron man is involved right and we see you know both you know tony stark and robert downey jr and there's at least one shot of spider-man slinging and the iron man suit flying alongside him so exciting uh, the other interesting stuff from this trailer is that uh, Peter and his buddy are pining over what I, I believe is Liz Allen and not Mary Jane or Gwen Stacy. Uh, Zendaya, who is the big casting news, is the big love interest of this, is in the, the trailer for a fraction of a second. She basically is the one who, she you know, they're, the boys are pining after Liz and they say, we better stop staring in case we look like idiots. And she basically says, too late. And that is it. That is it for Zendaya in this trailer. She also says they're losers. Well. Yeah. And th- the, his friend, is that that's Ned Leeds that's supposed to be? Yeah. I don't understand that. Like, that doesn't seem to match the comic character at all. No, the comic character Ned Leeds was a, a member of the Daily uh, Bugle and sort of a, a boring guy who was a love interest for another Spider-Man character and then eventually got revealed to be the Hobgoblin, but then he wasn't and it was this whole complicated web, if you will. <laughs> but he was never friends with Peter Parker in high school. And the other weird thing is that the Miles Morales Ultimate Spider-Man has a high school buddy who's like a chubby Asian guy, and his name is Genki, and they don't say Ned's name in this, so when I first saw the trailer, I just assumed, oh, well, they've just added Genki to to the Peter Parker story. Yeah. It just sort of makes sense, and then to have it turn out to be Ned Leeds, it's like, I don't know, that that came out of nowhere for me. Yeah, and even more, if they're actually going to tie it into that comic storyline, that means he's going to become someone... In which case, who's that actor? What do you mean? Like, I mean, is that gonna is he gonna eventually become a superhero or a supervillain and become a bigger character in the MCU? You and think is, like is he gonna become the Hobgoblin in a future movie? Maybe, but otherwise, why use that character at all? I mean, that's a good question. That that's the real question. Like, I, I don't know why you don't just make him Genki, but yeah, uh, I guess they're saving him for a potential Miles Morales movie down the line. Uh, either way. Great to see. We're, we're excited about a Spider-Man movie again. That takes doing. <laughs> but let's move on um, to our number four. This one takes some backstory. Uh, so the United Nations, I, I hope no one needs me to explain the United Nations. Have a <laughs> history, your history textbook. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they have a history where they've been, like, they have these campaigns to, to promote awareness and to try to make the world a better place. And they tend to assign fictional characters to sort of be like the ambassadors for these campaigns, like a mascot. Especially if it's something where they're trying to draw in kids or young people's right. interest. So like they use like they've used Disney characters. They've used Winnie the Pooh, they've used Tinkerbell. Um one of the birds from Angry Birds was one of the more recent ones, which fine, let's let's all try to stay relevant. I know that that's important. <laughs> 
Um, but in October, <laughs> Wonder Woman was named the Honorary Ambassador for Women. Um, quote, in, su in support of sustainable development goal to achieve gender equality and empower all women and girls. Um, and the campaign was, think of all the wonders we can do, stand up for the empowerment of women and girls everywhere. That sounds like a Wonder Woman thing, right? Definitely. It's very much a Wonder Woman thing. Apparently not. A petition was started by the UN staff members. It was signed by 44,000 people to protest it, and they've now dropped Wonder Woman as an ambassador. The petition stated that using Wonder Woman was not culturally encompassing or sensitive and an inappropriate choice at a time when the headline news in the United States and the world is the objectification of women and girls. I know this is the thing, but let me get through this. Their point... <laughs> Although the original creators may have intended Wonder Woman to represent a strong and independent warrior woman with a feminist message, yeah, the reality is that the character's current iteration is that of a large-breasted white woman of impossible proportions scantily clad in a shimmery, thigh-bearing bodysuit with an American flag motif and knee-high boots, the epitome of a pinup girl. Man, they had way too much fun writing that. Yeah, I don't know. This is dicey. We're a couple of uh, white privileged yeah. males. It's... it's it's been communicated to me that as pre middle aged white men, <laughs> I think what they were trying to say, but were un unable to phrase politely, is that we lack exposure to certain a certain perspective to give us a wider thing on this. Um, so. The idea being like that argument has been used to make our opinions less relevant. I disagree with that. But I would understand that there's a larger perspective I might not be able to tune into. I can see both sides. I go back and forth on... I mean, no, I've made it my choice. But in considering my opinion on this, I can see both sides of the argument. I'm going to... Let me be slightly more direct. I think the only way this statement holds true is if you're coming from a place of ignorance. Like, if you don't know anything about Wonder Woman and you're just going on the face value of what you see on posters and stuff then sure, maybe that makes sense as a bad image. But shouldn't the UN be holding their staff to a higher standard? Like, why don't you look into the character a bit more before you condemn her? Exactly. And that's it. What they're, what they're trying to say very politically correctly is that Wonder Woman is a bimbo. We don't want her representing us. You obviously and, have never... I have never read Wonder Woman where she is a bimbo. And they've also... By talking about the American flag thing, it's like an anti-American sort of sentiment as well. Like the fact that she's wearing red, white, and blue and st wearing stars, that is somehow uh, a negative thing as though she represents America. And in some ways she does, but I, I think the important thing that's lost is she's like an immigrant to America. She comes from this island, and she comes to America, and she's trying to make it better and trying to make the world better. Which and is a theme that really does come up in the stories. Yeah, and it's also, you'd think, another thing that the UN would want to capitalize on. Yeah. I mean, the breakdown goes like this. It goes like, is she dressed silly and showing off a lot of skin? Yes. But the counter-argument is, well, I thought we weren't judging women based on what they chose to wear. And then the counter-argument to that is, well, she didn't choose to wear that... She was drawn that way by someone who's trying to sell comic books to 14-year-old boys. And the counter-argument to that is, like you said, well, have you read the comic books? Because it's not about what she wears. And a lot of comic book characters, especially women, are dressed uh, and, and depicted in these very sexual poses and, and, and stances and whatnot. I don't find that with Wonder Woman. Most of the time, she is in a very powerful pose, uh, the pose of strength. That She's not usually depicted in any sort of submissive or or uh, especially 
I don't know, sexual way. Yeah, and, and comic books do have a history of that being a bit of a problem. Mm-hmm. But that's never been something I've tied to Wonder Woman. Ever. But the other thing about it that I find somewhat insulting is, not to me, but on behalf of others, is the fact that the, she's sort of described as this impossible, has this impossible physique. And yet she's being played by at least two different women in live action things. Two women who were there at the UN to inaugurate this thing. Gal Gadot, or Gadot, uh, who's the current Wonder Woman, and Linda Carter, who is the original TV Wonder Woman. I don't think their physiques are impossible, you know? They are living, breathing women who have done, captured that essence very well. But, I mean, by impossible, you mean very difficult to get to. Not everyone can look like Gal Gadot. Um, but again, but that's not a problem that's limited to Wonder Woman, or even to comics, or to anything. That's a problem in every form of media that we have. Um, you know, Tinkerbell wears a pretty slinky dress, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's creepy to think about that way. <laughs> but she was A-OK to represent uh, the environment. There yeah. was no problems with that. Um, <sighs> no one's mind is going to get changed on this because it's so polarizing. The way I think we here at Geek Top 5 are looking at it is that the criticisms levied against it come from people who don't understand the character, who aren't familiar with the character, who are judging a woman based on her looks. And there's an irony in that, that I think it's important for people making this argument to recognize. I think if you expose yourself to any Wonder Woman media, she isn't kowtowing to Batman or Superman. A lot of the times she's actually the the person who's in the right, and there's a lot to admire in Wonder Woman. I think a lot of those strengths are really important to consider. I think we're very disappointed in this decision, and if you support removing her... I would encourage you to take a second look. Very nicely phrased. Thank you. Less politically awkward, and for me, so much more exciting. <laughs> a couple weeks ago, they had MechCon in Vancouver, which, why, I mean, we're adults, so we couldn't go, but, like, that's the sign of... <laughs> no, I we're can't adults, believe. we can go. We should go we next should go. time. <laughs> because they released a trailer for MechWarrior 5. We're getting a new MechWarrior video game. MechWarrior is a series of PC games that are a subset of the Battletech franchise. Uh, we've talked before on this show about sci-fi universes that expand to cover multiple forms of media. You know, the Star Trek universe... Televisions, video games, comic books, like the Mass Effect universe. Battletech is one that never quite hit the prime time. Um, The modern recipe for Battletech is start with your Game of Thrones, so with your noble houses and your regal characters who are actually backstabbing jerks. Then mix in a liberal dose of Star Wars. So instead of swords and horses, you have laser guns and spaceships. And then just, instead of your crack fighter pilots, replace the fighters with giant walking robot tanks. And people driving them. That's Battletech. That's exactly the atmosphere you're looking at. Mech Warrior is a series of PC computer games where you pilot those giant walking tanks and blow stuff up with lasers and missiles and participate in these huge, like, noble political games between the houses and stuff. It, and full disclosure, was absolutely my favorite thing in the world growing up. Where other people wear a cross or a Star of David... I wear a pendant that my wife had made for me for our wedding of the insignia of House Davian from Battletech. That's so, so a little bit like biased. So like, you like it, is what you're saying. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> so this is a franchise, you know, I played uh, uh, some of the games here and there. Uh, it sort of 
fell off a cliff at a certain point, though, right? Like, what was what made it disappear? Mm-hmm. The thing about MechWarrior games is that it's considered a simulation title rather than what gamers would refer to as a more arcadey title. It's more, it's slower and it's more precise in terms of you think of like a flight simulator. Not much is really happening. So yes, you're you're in combat is a lot more interesting, but the battle mechs in BattleTech, the robots are slow and ponderous. They're very literally walking tanks. So like if you want to you know, run forward and turn to the left, in a modern video game, like, you know, you tilt sticks, now you're looking like you're done. That would be a very fast movement. Now, in this, you throttle up, and the mech starts to walk very ponderously. You slowly twist and turn. I think it does make for great gameplay. It doesn't make for very mass digestible gameplay. Compared to a lot of like the big shooter games out there right now, it's incredibly slow. So how do you feel about a game like like Titanfall, which is on the Xbox? It wasn't exclusive, right? But anyway, it's it's also got giant mechs. Have you played that? It's it, it does have giant mechs, but it's much faster. Um, Hawken is another good example of this too. We've seen a few of them. Yes, they're big robots, but they're jumping around like people. And it, okay, and and battle. Like, I mean, it's silly to use the term realistic when applying to robots, but. It's it it suspends disbelief a little when you have these hundred ton giant you know four story tall machines like leaping for cover, mm. you know like that isn't, that seems like a little much. Realistically, a giant machine wouldn't be able to do that. Yeah, I, in the Mech Warrior games, you do tend to take a lot of hits. Yeah, and you know it's you're not going to even in the lightest fastest ones, dodging isn't really a thing you do. Like you can throttle up and be go and make me make yourself a little harder to hit. But then you have the same token, it's hard to hit anything. Anyway, we're getting a little bit into the weeds. Um, well, like, the last time we saw a MechWarrior game, I guess the last major title was 2002, was MechWarrior 4 Mercenaries. Since then, there have been a couple sort of arcade style-ish, like the Mech Assault games on Xbox. Right. And there's an online game which never hit the big time. It's no World of Warcraft. It has its small but dedicated fan base. But there hasn't been anything happening with two mech warrior in a while. What this means is that, yes, we're going to get to pilot slow, ponderous, giant robots again, but it's a big, immersive, single-player story in this really rich, complex universe. Like, imagine playing Game of Thrones, but where there were no characters or story. It was just like a sword-fighting game. Wouldn't last very long, right? Yeah. That's what I want to see from this, and that's what we're going to get. Now, to be fair... We know next to nothing about this. It's MechWarrior 5 Mercenaries. Yes, that's the same subtitle as the last one. And in MechWarrior 2, there was a MechWarrior 2 Mercenaries. I guess they like their Mercenaries. I have to um, say, when I, when I played the MechWarrior games, the Mercenary ones always stood out to me as, as some of the best. It's I mean, you know what? It's very convenient from a writing perspective because it lets you attach yourself to all the different sides. Yeah, so. and especially in this day and age of, of choice in in video game storytelling it allows you oh i'm gonna pick this mission i'm gonna pick that mission and and it gives you an opportunity to have a feeling that you are controlling the story yeah i'm gonna give my loyalty to this faction or to this character and that sets me against this side and gives me access to different stuff it yeah that makes for the best game i'm certain anyway we don't know much about it but we've seen the trailer we've seen some gameplay so we know there's a game there for the maybe two of you out there who know anything about BattleTech, it's set in 3015 so it's a third succession war, which I mean, really all it comes down to is no clans. It's just the Inner Sphere stuff. It is posited for a release in, I think, 2018, but we'll have to wait and see. So far, there's very little details. I'm just jazzed. Right. It's great news. 
So, let's go on to number two. That's some new news coming out of uh, Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, they keep releasing news once every couple of weeks. It's like they're spoon-feeding us. Yeah, it's perfect. Makes it, makes it very easy to make this show. More casting news. Yeah, uh, although this one I don't think has been officially confirmed anywhere. This is like a rumor, or not? I think more than a rumor. It's like sources say, but it's been in all the major publications, so we're pretty confident about it. It's uh, the the main character has been cast. Yeah, she's uh, going to be a lieutenant commander, and she will be played by Sonequa Martin Green from The Walking Dead, which finally someone I've heard of. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> So, we have a lead character, we still don't know much about it, but it sounds like all those rumors that we heard female, we heard lieutenant commander, not a captain, we heard it was going to be like a person, a minority. So, I'm suddenly, I really trust the rumor mill now. Yeah. Which is great. Uh, but they haven't released too much more about the lead, which is a shame. It's great to know that we've got someone, it's great to know who it is, it's great to know that you know, she's got some chops behind her. I feel like uh, that when they have an official release about her casting, we'll get more information about the character. Uh, in the meantime, what we're left with is with The Walking Dead, cast members of that show don't tend to leave with their lives intact, you know? Right, yeah. There's a chance, like, if she has to go do another show, they can probably find a way to out her character. Yeah, it's not like she's just gonna go off into the sunset and maybe she'll show up again later. No, Walking Dead characters tend to get eaten when they're not going to be on the show anymore. So, Sasha fans, yeah, know, Professor Carmelo, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, they have said, and I mean, why wouldn't they say this, but the Walking Dead people have said, oh no, we fully intend on keeping her around. And considering the way the, the Star Trek show is being shot, it's conceivable they could just shoot it in her Walking Dead break and like the two will sort of balance out. But I wouldn't. I if I I was in Vegas and they were betting on this. Yeah, I wouldn't bet. I wouldn't bet on her lasting too much longer. Yeah. The other um, little bit of news that I saw was that uh, I actually think this is more exciting. Well, maybe yeah. I. I don't know if it's the same thing. I, they also cast a bunch of Klingons, right? Um, which I thought honestly it was more exciting than casting the lead. Um, again, three people I've never heard of, uh, but. They've casted three Klingon characters who are going to be recurring characters throughout the show. Which, I mean, for me, I feel very personally vindicated because I was saying from the beginning that we're going to have some Federation Klingon stuff happening in this. But more so to the point that the Klingons have sort of become an aside in Star Trek. In the original series, they were just sort of the angry bad guys. But throughout Next Generation and into Deep Space Nine, they almost sort of became like a separate plot at times. Right. And some of those Klingon episodes are phenomenal. Like yeah. the one where Quark marries a Klingon woman? Is that the sort of what you're talking about? Honestly, I really like that episode. <laughs> That's really funny. It's played up very comically. But a lot of the stuff with Martok and Gowron and Worf. And oh, it's yeah. like Every once in a while, they take the camera off the Federation, like through Worf most of the time, and focus on what's going on with the Klingons. And they're always so much fun. Yeah, and especially in Deep Space Nine, they became uh, much more fleshed out and very interesting characters. And this is going to maybe do that for the original series version of the Klingons, who, again, are sort of one-note villains. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, you know, it was 50 years ago. Yeah. That, yeah, it was, the, the writing wasn't as complex back then. Certainly not for Star Trek. I suppose, yes. Yeah, the, the, the point of the villains was to be someone for Captain Kirk to get into a fist fight with. Right. And, like, tear his shirt in just the right <laughs> way. 
Now we know all this stuff about the Klingon house politics and Klingon honor and the way they react to each other and like you know all the drunken singing yeah. and stuff and the forehead head like it's, that's a good question. Do we know are these guys Klingons going to have foreheads? We do, we don't wait. Who knows? Right? Right. They, at DS Nine they made a joke about it. Yeah. The makeup in the old Star Trek doesn't match the makeup and then in the new. Enterprise made it a whole thing, oh, drove and... it into the ground complicated it to no end yeah. trying to explain something that no one cared about. I'm hoping that goes the same way as midichlorians where we go like, yeah, I guess that's canon, but we're just never going to mention it and not deal with it because it's dumb and it never should have happened. Right. So I'm thinking we're probably going to see something like the Kevin, Kelvin timeline Klingons where they like, they're sort of wrinkly. Okay. Like, it's sort of like that nice in-between so you can make everybody happy. Yeah, like uh, Christopher Plummer on Star Trek Six. Yeah. Or he's just got a little wink of a, a forehead wrinkle there. And a cool eye patch. Yeah, and a cool eye patch. And just, man, like, let me tell you, and has the, the Kelvin timeline Star Trek been missing its Klingons? Like, we've been waiting and waiting, and they do one sort of kind of fight scene and Into Darkness. Yeah. And they hinted that the Klingons are going to be a bigger deal, and then they just threw it out the window for beyond. Finally, Klingons, they are such a fun part of Star Trek. I would say core to the Star Trek experience. You can't do it without Klingons. Really? I don't know if I would go that far, but I hear what you're saying. I'm excited to see it, and mm-hmm. I'm excited to see the uh, like a, a whole season-long arc about the Federation and the Klingons and, and what that means for the, the franchise. Oh, I am so on board. What a great idea. Okay, so let's let's move on to number one here. Number one. Uh, my show notes for this one say Rogue One, and then a ton of exclamation notes. Yeah, it's pretty much all yeah. uh, mine says, too. Spoiler alert. Oh, yeah. Um, big time. Yeah, big time spoiler alert. I, we're unapologetically, if you want to go into this virginal, and if you're a big Star Wars fan, you really should, skip ahead five or six minutes. Look for the theme music. Okay, those guys are gone. Ah, Rogue One. I like. I mean, I have some minor nitpicks here and there, which we'll yes. discuss. But overall, I'm so very happy. I really enjoyed it for sure. It, it had, uh, you know, a side of the Star Wars universe we don't get to see. We got to see some of the early days of the rebellion and sort of the the nitty gritty politics of it, yeah, and just the nitty gritty period. Yeah, the the rebels are always like have always been the good guys. I mean, and this one, they're yeah, they're the good guys, but they're desperate and they're hunted and they're harried and they're making bad decisions and they're like they really made it look like a desperate revolutionary force. Mm-hmm. They they couldn't afford to be noble necessarily. Exactly. You know, the Diego Luna's character, Cassian Cass- Andor. Cass- yes. So he in in one of the first scenes, he shoots a guy in the back. Yeah. Just for convenience' sake, and yeah, just because it makes his life easier. A friend. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, and Lucas isn't around to re-edit it so that the guy shoots him first. Right. <laughs> so, like, we see very early on that some of these rebels are, like, are bad people doing bad things for a good cause. And I really like that depiction. Mm-hmm. Um, Another important uh, aspect of this is we, we see that uh, Jin, the main character, Jin or so, she's raised after an eventful youth by Saw Gerrera, who's a character Guerrera. from... Guerrera. From uh, Rebels. So, I wanted to hear from you as a fan of the Rebels yeah. TV series. Yeah, I, I mean, and again, this is like I have some nitpicks. One of them is that, you know, it's 2016, and in a film full of minorities, they still managed to cast one black guy and kill him off immediately, completely pointlessly. And they cast Forrest Whitaker for that? I have to assume that some of Saw Gerrera's scenes got cut. Because yeah. of, like all the characters in this movie had something to do except for him. 
I mean, he kind of had something to do. Like he 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 was he got the information out of uh, the pilot, right? And well, he... but but if he wasn't there, then the pilot would have just ended up with the rebels, and the same thing would have happened. Like that's mm. the big test. What happens in the movie if you remove a character? Right. You remove Jin, there's no movie. You know, if you remove Andor, there's no movie. You remove Saw Gerrera, the exact same sequence of events happens. Interesting. I hadn't thought of, well, I haven't had much time to think about it, honestly. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so much more they could have done with that, and they didn't. But then again, the, the whole first act of this movie was very, like, the cuts were coming so fast. It was like someone, like, chopping up vegetables to saute. That's true. I know, so, you know, you jump from planet to planet to planet really yeah. quickly. But I think, they, I expect on the, you know, the DVD, Blu-ray, special, enhanced force edition, we're going to see some more scenes with him. Yeah, we also know that there were some reshoots. I mean, there are reshoots with every movie. It always happens. But in this one, they hired a, another director who wrote extra stuff. It was like, it, it seems like it was a, a bigger deal than we may have been led to believe originally. Mm-hmm. But it didn't give the mashed up feeling that Suicide Squad had. Yeah, or when you Ghostbusters. Wa- or when you, like, yeah, when you watch those movies, you can see the breaks. Yeah. Where someone else took over or something was slid in. This one, you just sat there and just enjoyed the whole way through. It was, it was. You're right. I mean, that different take on the universe was such a joy to watch. Mm-hmm. And they managed to create a compelling, exciting drama, like where you didn't know how it was going to end, even though you know exactly how it's going to end because we've seen the movie that takes place directly after this. Okay, so before we get to that, because I really want to talk about the ending of this movie, but mm. we have to talk about the biggest. Thing, talking point that that seems to have come out of this, which is the CG resurrection yes. of a couple of characters, of a few CG and then spliced in. Okay, a few so I like, missed. So the, let's start with the the smallest ones: okay. the Red Leader and yeah. Gold Gar- Leader, Garvin Dreis and Dutch Vander, <laughs> who are just. It, I think it's exactly the same footage from A New Hope of the okay. X Wing and the Y Wing pilots. With new lines over it. I mean, they're in the Starfighters. And, oh no, look out! Like it's they don't have to do too much. Interesting. But they go to. But like some of those scenes looked identical. Right. I think the footage was just cut in and then probably touched up. I don't yeah. want to because it, it didn't seem to look too different from the modern pilots. But yeah, they wanted those two guys from A New Hope to be here as well, and they did. And it was fast enough that it didn't really. You no, know, it didn't knock me out of the universe or out of the story or anything. And it was kind of a joy to see them again. I honestly didn't notice it. Like I, really? I, I, I mean, I, there were a couple of pilots where I was like, "That's interesting. I, that that person looks sort of familiar." But it didn't occur to me that it was literally the same person. The only time where I had a moment where I was like, "Oh, that's clearly a reference," is when Red Five gets killed because I know Luke. Oh, is Luke be- yeah, that's Red how Five. Luke becomes Red Five. Yeah. That slot is available. Anyway, those were the <laughs> those were the small ones. The most major one was bringing back Grand Moff Tarkin and drawing Peter Cushing's face on him. Yeah, so which... there were some scenes with it where he looked like a cartoon character hanging around with him. Absolutely. Or, like, maybe more than a cartoon character, maybe, like, those really expensive cutscenes that, like, Blizzard or the Blur right. Studios makes. Like, it looked really good, but didn't... They're not... Like, we're definitely on the far side of the Uncanny Valley. We're much better than Terminator 3. Okay. But we're not quite there. I think the the times where it was the weirdest was when he was talking. Yeah. Any scene where he was standing there, it was really shocking how much he looked like him. And it, it uh, you know, I, I was blown away by it. And the less he talked, the more impressed I was. To be fair, the voice, like, the voice was great. Sound a lot like the original. Yeah. But, but you're right. It, when he's delivering dialogue, 
Yeah, I mean, it, it looks like a cutscene. And especially because he's constantly talking to a real actor. Right. Who looks like a real human being, because he is one. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, that was a little weird. So, but all in all, I was pretty impressed by him. Like, you, you I mean, Grand Moff Tarkin is the Death Star. He's the guy who's in charge of it as of A New Hope. Yeah, I mean, we were saying when we were watching the trailers, why isn't Tarkin the bad guy? Right. Yeah. So I, I'm glad they did it. I sort of feel like they had to do it, and, and I thought he was, it was all things considered, as well done as it could be. So now, here, here's my big question for you. As the movie's ending, uh, they've sent all the information about the, the Death Star. I can't believe we haven't talked about Jin at all in this. <laughs> we'll get back we'll get to it. it. But she sends all the information up to the Rebels. There's a really cool scene where they open the shield that was blocking the transmissions. Love that moment with the crashing Star Destroyers. Anyway, so they send the information up, and uh, these guys are running through the ship to get the information to someone who ends up being Princess Leia. Leia. And it's, again, it's, you know, you only see her face for a half a second, but she looks really good, I thought. Uh, yeah. I mean, it helps that she was only on screen for a few seconds. But yeah, like, the actress who played her must look a lot like her. Yeah. And but and then the touch-ups were that She looked exactly like Carrie Fisher in 1970. Or... 1977. 77. So, we sort of knew Leia would be involved because... Her father, in an earlier scene, says, Oh, I've got just the person who's going to go find this Jedi I used to know. So if that's the case, why is she in this battle that's just there to to open up the shield? To get the plans. I guess so. I don't know. Maybe I'm looking at it too much from a modern-day perspective where, you know, we could just email each other information, you know? But Well, I mean, they, and they, they write in some exposition to deal with that. It's like, oh, the tapes are so large. It's... Right. I don't know. It, it seemed weird. Okay, but I'll accept that they drop the Tantive Four out of this exploding capital ship and it goes into hyperspace and, and gets away. But, you know, Vader and his crew, they know where they're, they're, they get right after him. You know, we know uh, the next scene is the beginning of A New Hope where the uh, Star Destroyer is capturing the Tantive Four. But then why would there be this ruse when they catch them where they're like, if this is an ambassadorship, where's the consular and all that stuff? So it's like, no, consularship, where's the ambassador? ambassador. It, it, it makes it seem even more desperate. It, honestly, I kind of liked that because it explains why Vader is so pissed off at the start of A New Hope. If you watch the classic trilogy, that movie and really even that scene is the only scene where he's yelling at people. Right. Usually he's very calm and like spooky. And that's, you know, I want you to tear this ship apart until you find those plans and bring me the passengers I want. Like that. Whoa. Yeah. Now we understand he's pissed because he's already been working on this ship for a while. And, and, and again, I know we're going back and forth, <laughs> but those 90 seconds of Darth Vader kicking ass. Yes, that was really cool. That Like... The rest of the movie could have been Phantom Menace, and then they played that scene. I've been like, "Great, thank you. Worth the price of admission. Can I come again tomorrow?" That was phenomenal because um, we hadn't seen Vader kick ass. Yeah, and the other thing about that is it's it's a lesson that I guess they learned from the uh, the prequels, where everyone had lightsabers. Lightsabers were everywhere. Every second, a new lightsaber was shooting up. It didn't didn't matter. Everyone just got new lightsabers constantly. Yeah. With this, in the last. 10 minutes of the movie, you see your first lightsaber, and it makes it so much more powerful. And really your first use of the Force. Yeah. Like, these are, like everyone in this movie has been a real person. Like, yeah. With, with real vulnerabilities and real limitations. And then those poor schmucks are stuck <laughs> in that hallway with Darth Vader, and they're terrified. Yeah. 
And now, again, when you rewatch the start of A New Hope and they're all lining up in the hallway and they all look really scared, it's like, no, no, they're not just scared of the Empire. They're scared of Darth Vader. And they just saw what Darth Vader did to yeah. a bunch of their buddies. Yeah, yeah. I could see that. That I, I think that worked out really well. But now, now let's jump back a bit, because okay. yeah. we've only got so much time, and we have to discuss the main focus of this movie, the, the, the new characters, and with again, with Felicity Jones as Jin Urso, yeah. who I thought did a great job. Um, it's tricky because, again, this isn't really a Star Wars movie. It doesn't, it doesn't have the same beats. It didn't have the same sort of sense of adventure. So calling her like a new Star Wars character doesn't... It, it it doesn't mean the same thing like when you call Daisy Ridley's Ray a new star like that's a new Star Wars character. Yeah, Jin Urso as a character is something a little bit different and a little bit more gritty. So in a way, it's apples and oranges. But I think as an addition to the Star Wars world, I think she did. I think she was great. I agree. I think she did a good job with what she had. But I found her kind of unmemorable. Like there was nothing about her that I found especially distinctive. It's anything for me to sort of latch on to. You know, same thing with Caspian C, whatever his name is. <laughs> I'm terrible with, with these new names, but Cassian Andor, Diego Luna's character. A, I thought the performance was weak to begin with, but I also found him, he was, I don't know, just like a gritty jerk cipher, and he didn't have the charm of Han Solo. Oh, no, no, no. And But nobody was charming. I disagree. It, Blind okay, Jedi yeah. dude was amazing. Shared Imway with one of the funniest lines in all of Star Wars when they put the bag over his head. Yeah. And he, Are you kidding me? I am blind. <laughs> <laughs> he was he was fantastic, and his buddy who was always helping him, they had this sort of like bromance going on. They were great. They I were would have gr- watched a whole movie just of those two. They were great. I don't know if they have that Han Solo kind of like I don't know if I want to be that character. Mm, I don't know. He was so he made blind being blind cool. You know, he he pulled it off. It was like a, he did. He I I really liked it and his cynical buddy. Um, he was great. Uh, Bodie the pilot was was good and it was a good performance. Didn't have a ton to do. Didn't have a ton to do. Um, I felt like K two S O was underused. Everything he said was a laugh. It was, I I found him a bit of a muddled character, like I never quite, I don't know, I, I just, it wasn't enough. He wasn't enough of a That's jerk. what I mean, he was underused. Yeah. I would have liked him to have a larger role. But he kept... They tr- I, Like they treated him the way the characters treat 3PO, where he's kind of just like a C-lister who's hanging on. Yeah. Where other important things are happening, except that 3PO doesn't do anything interesting. Whereas everything K K two did was interesting. He always had a, like a line, always had a comment, he always had a way to help. Yeah, like he did, and so in a way, it's kind of meta. Like, and it justifies why he's so irritated all the time. He reminded me of Marvin from the uh, yeah from the Hitchhiker's Guide, Guide, the paranoid <laughs> android. Uh, yeah, so those are my big thoughts on it. I I I know I've sort of focused on a lot of sort of negative notes, but I did enjoy it, and yeah. I do want to see it again to get a better grasp on and it. And the reason I'm nitpicking is because I loved it so much that I'm going over it in all this detail. Yeah. Like, and there's all kinds of little tributes and things. There's all these references to the Rebels cartoon, which is great to see okay. for that shared universe thing. All the 70s, like, mustaches and jackets and stuff to make it look like a new hope. It was just so great. And so well done. It was done in a way that it didn't feel like a novelty. It yeah. was done just so it, it made fit. You, yeah, you know? it fit in to that world and all that aside it was an incredibly exciting movie that like holy holy cow that space battle 
might, I mean, we were just talking about how much I like the space battle in Jedi. That one might be better. That was great. Yes. I had a lot. I, I mean, like I said, the, the crashing uh, Star Destroyers was great. I was like cheering at just, that. It was it, so cool. It was so, like, just technically put together. The effects were phenomenal. And just all the, all the action, all the tenseness, the suspense of it. It was a blast. I'm going to go see it again. For yeah. sure. I'd like to see yeah. it in 2D, honestly. Give it a shot in that. Cause... Oh, man. The, the, it was beautiful in IMAX. The, I'm the, sure. I, yeah, the 3D IMAX was remarkable. If you're listening to this, hopefully you've already seen the movie, because if not, we just spoiled everything for you. The whole thing. On the off chance you haven't, go see it. It's great. And if you have seen it, go see it again. All right. You've been listening to Geek Top 5. That was the news for this week. We'll be right back with you, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Geek Top 5 and to the sort of season finale. We've been doing Geek Top 5 down to the holidays now. This is the end of season 1. And so instead of bringing in a special guest today, uh, we kind of wanted to go back and talk about geek stuff in 2016. We're going to be the special guests. Right. We're pretty great. Yeah. Uh, No. um, We've had a wild ride so far and a lot of people are going to remember 2016 kind of as the year that broke your nose. Um, and took your lunch money. <laughs> but there were some highlights, and we wanted to circle back, so we're just going to go back and forth. This one's going to be a little less facts and news, and more just what we enjoy, what we think it's important to take away. We each picked five things that uh, excited us uh, in the geek world in the last year. Exactly. So, Jesse, why don't you uh, sure, I'm start gonna, us off? I'm going to start, maybe not what you'd expect coming from me, but... One thing I'm going to remember about 2016 is it brought us the Marvel's The Civil War movie. Ah, so good. And, I mean, it's kind of a... It's almost a disservice to Captain America, because really it's Captain America 3 on paper. But in practice, Civil War was bringing to life one of my... Absolutely my favorite comic book arc. Superheroes fighting each other in the comics is not rare. 99% of the time, it's a result of alien mind control. Right. Or some other mistaken identity issue. Yeah, I mean, or like someone is a clone, yeah. but a bad clone, or in a parallel universe. Cl- like, there's a lot of dumb reasons to get superheroes <laughs> to fight each other. Marvel Civil War comics were really important to me when I first read them because they. I mean, we've talked about this in an earlier episode, but they lay out a real, a real difference of opinion. And yeah. it, because it's a comic book, it blows out of hand and turns into superheroes fighting. But it's really a discussion of issues and a way to look at the world. And in the comics, it was predicated on 50, 60 years of continuity with uh, hundreds of characters on hand. The Marvel movies have had, what, 10 years, maybe not even, even. to to establish a universe. And so when it was first announced, I thought, this is... This is going to be like yeah. Civil War light. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's ambitious. Yeah. Um, but they did it so well. It's... And I mean, and when I say Civil War, what I really mean is the scene on the airfield when all the heroes come together and they start fighting and it's an action-packed, exciting fight scene and you like it because it's a great movie, but you feel terrible. Like, it's like, stop fighting! Stop <laughs> fighting! And like the fact that they managed to pull that off, I thought, was incredible. And because it's a superhero movie, it sort of, like, it doesn't get taken as seriously as your serious film. Yeah. But I think being able to pull that off was tremendous. 
And it's that's in particular. It has this delicate balance where it's a cool action scene. It's also funny. And there are important conversations happening that are going to power the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. Now, for me, the the scene that really stands out is one of the final fight scenes where it's just uh, Winter Soldier, Captain America, and Iron Man. And there's a shot there where... You know, Iron Man's shooting and he's hitting Captain America's shield and it's he's holding the shield over his head and it is directly taken from a comic book panel. And to me, just seeing that come to life was enough to, to make me excited. Oh, it's phenomenal. I mean, and again, it could have just been a stupid reason. They could have made a stupid reason for these characters to fight, but they didn't. We believe these characters are in their right minds and they both believe that what they're doing is the right thing and they both hate... That they have to that they have to try and stop the other one. It's so powerful. It, it's it's so much depth for again. Like I, I don't. I'm, I'm doing it right now for a superhero movie. I'm belittling it because it's comic books, right? But there's really a huge amount of feeling in there, and that was like that's such an important moment for me from the comic books and the fact that they did it so well in the movie. And I just I would like to think that was everything the MCU was building up to. And that's the great thing. There's, I don't know if it would be as impactful if you saw it in isolation. If you just saw it on its own. But having all the build-up and knowing the tensions between Captain America and Iron Man are already seeded from previous movies makes it all the more powerful. Absolutely. It's not just a Mm one-off. It's part of a larger story that we've all been following and we buy into it. I get, if I have to, I mean, we've both had these, you more than me, have had the arguments of trying to say that, yes, this is actually really relevant material. And I think Civil War, as the comics, did a good job, but it's hamstrung because it's in comic form. Now it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be, but it is. But now that it's come out in the movie, and it's just... I mean, like the obvious comparison, compare it to Batman versus Superman, which was ridiculous. The reason for their fight was classic bad comic books where, or, or at least silly comic books, where they're fighting for no reason. For nothing. They're fighting because... And it's resolved yeah. for no reason. And they name the movie Batman vs. Superman, because that's the only cool part about it. Yeah. And that's all they had. Civil War did it phenomenally. I think when if you look back at like the history of when geek stuff became cool and sort of built, became a major part of the zeitgeist... I think Civil War is going to stand out in all the Marvel Cinematic Universes just as a, a piece of quality art and entertainment. The the one last thing I want to say about it is that uh, some people have criticized the fact that no one really dies in it. So the stakes aren't very high, well, you know? But I, That's not what it's about. I agree. And I think we've gotten too used to characters being killed off. For no reason. Like Quicksilver in, in uh, Avengers Ultron. 2. Yeah. Or even um, uh, Agent Coulson in the first Avengers, where they just kill him because they need to kill him. Yeah, for gravitas. And it just feels so hollow. If It's a waste of a character. In this case, it's a great movie. I feel like the stakes are as high as in any of those yeah, other movies. Like, what they're fighting over is not who's going to survive. That's not right. what it's about. It's just about this ideology, and really, like you look at like the way the, the way the world is in MCU. Iron Man won the Civil War, right? There's now the registration. Captain America, this hero, is now underground. Right. That's what the stakes were. It's about it's a, you know freedom of choice and what you, it, it, oh yeah, it's such an irritating argument. <laughs> anyway, no, that's a big thing. 
Let's and I could go about it forever. What's what's on? Let's give me one of yours. What's on your list? So I'm going to talk about uh, Penny Dreadful, which is a TV series, and the main reason I want to talk about it is because I don't think anyone talks about it. It sort of it hit the TV scene three years ago and has always sort of been under the radar. And I think part of the reason is it's it's like set in the 19th century. It's got most of the characters are, are literary figures like. Dr. Frankenstein or uh, the Mina Harker's family from the Dracula books is involved. It's, and it's, it's relentlessly grim, you know, mm. that is also a, sort of something that might put people off, but there is something about it that is compelling. And it's the, the dialogue is, is not like anything else on TV where it's so elevated. It's almost Shakespearean, where there's this poetry to how they speak. You know, in Game of Thrones, they all have accents and they all use sort of old-timey vocabulary, but they're basically just speaking like regular people. And this, it's very much a script. It's like no one speaks like these characters do, but it elevates it a little bit. It makes it feel special. I don't know how else to describe it. It's, I guess you're describing it, it the, you know, the difference between reading Shakespeare and just reading modern English literature. Like, there's something about elegant prose that doesn't sound like something a person would say, and it can be done really badly. Mm-hmm. Star Wars prequels. <laughs> but when it's done well, it, it's an art form. And it, it, it can add a lot to what a person is experiencing or saying or doing. I can also see how it would turn some people off. Definitely. And that's... I mean, you, know, you bring up Penny Dreadful a lot, and every time I go, which one was that again? Exactly. Be- because you're right. It's a, is it even a B-lister? I guess it would be a C-lister. But that's, the crazy thing is it's got an amazing cast. Like Timothy Dalton is in it. Uh, Eva Green, who is in, she was in the Bond movies and a bunch of other stuff. Sin City 2, is Sin that Sin City 2, yeah. Okay. She's she's a, a great actress, and it's not often you see somebody. It's like, her movie career is fine. Like, everything's going well. But she chose to do this TV series, and you can see why. Like, there, she gives an incredible performance. She runs the range from just absolute insanity to completely totally in control it's like an actress's dream i would imagine to have this much variety in one character and you know josh hartnett who was a a 2000s era heartthrob who was in sin city one actually he is in this as this tortured american guy with a secret Uh, people constantly die around him it's i don't want to spoil it if you haven't seen the show from the beginning but it's he's got this great character and he really again shows a, a, a huge range and some great acting chops and uh, it's it's not a perfect show like there's all these characters and all these story threads and they don't always tie together neatly like there are a couple of characters who by the end of the series you're sort of like why are they still on the show like they're not influencing the main plot line but they're still really interesting characters and it, I mean, it sounds like the show is trying to do something different. Yeah. Um, and you know, if you think of like a grim show with many interwoven plot lines, that's very dramatic and very grim. That sounds like a lot of television these days. Um, it sounds like Penny Dreadful is sort of trying to do its own thing, which means it's not going to target a mass audience. Mm-hmm. It's going to target a niche audience, and that's probably why we're not hearing as much about it as as you th- say it warrants. I suppose, yeah. let's say. And and I gotta say, even f- 
even as far as grim TV goes, most of them have moments of levity. I couldn't tell you like a single moment of levity from this show. It is relentlessly grim. So if you're not ready for that, or you're not interested in that, don't don't go into this. But and, and that's is... and what you're describing is me to a T. Right. Like if I want grim, I, I, I'll read the news. Um, <laughs> but so yeah, so it won't target people like me. Right. Uh, me, and I kind of have a thing for the, the monster stuff. So that, like, it's it just it's kind of missed its mark. I appreciate that we live in an era where a show can get away with that. That you don't have to mass appeal to absolutely everybody, because then if you appeal to everybody, you're appealing to nobody. And then like you have Fahrenheit 451, like you have nothing interesting. It's right. not worth anything. Having cool specialized stuff to seek out out there, I think that's really important. And I kind of wish, honestly, we saw more of that on television. So really. In a way, Penny Dreadful can kind of stand like, as an example of what we want to see more of. Not in the sense that I want to see more grim monster shows, but I want to see more specialized stuff. Mm-hmm. I think that's a much cooler way to run television. I understand it may not be the most cost-effective. So it was a, it was a neat uh, ride to be on. It's only three years of, uh, worth of TV. I believe less than ten episodes a season. So it's it's pretty easy to get through as far as mm. a binge watch. They they went out on a real high note. There was some cool stuff that they hadn't done before. But you know because there hasn't been much opportunity to talk about it in previous years. I just wanted to mention the whole thing since it's all over now. That's fair. Uh, I'll shoot out another one, I guess. Um, another thing from 2016 for me and. Another one that I feel like might be debatable whether it can actually make this list uh, was Star Trek Discovery. Obviously, the show is not out. So, and it might be... And again, I'm kind of waffly on the show, but the announcement of it is something I'm going to remember. It's the 50th anniversary of Star Trek in 2016, and you wouldn't know it. They haven't done much. Well, yeah, I I tend to agree. You know, like, when The Legend of Zelda turned 25... Like, when Super Mario turned 25... Nintendo had a year of products and promotions and events, and Mario showed up at the end of the last Olympics, for God's <laughs> sake. Star Trek? Like, what did they do? They issued some, like, Star Trek 50th anniversary beer. And there they, was... And they reissued some of the Blu-rays that we already had. Yeah, there Whoop. were the... At least in Canada, there was some stamps through Canada Post. Oh, stamps. I mean, because you know how often I send letters, so You're I gotta get me those so stamps. So cynical. So cynical about the poor stamp industry. Yeah. Uh, um, no, but I they feel... also did that Star Trek uh, event thing at various locations in North America. Uh... Yeah, we were talking about going, and then you went without me. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember that. It's uh, not a sore spot at what, all, clearly. What, what I'm getting at is that, I mean, Star Trek, I, I feel like it should be bigger, and it's not. I mean, they released a movie, for God's sake. Star Trek Beyond came out, and they didn't think to try to build a 50th. I feel like Star Trek is being underserved. And the part of that is that there hasn't really been a new show for a while. The same way that... Star Wars, as big as it is, it always revolves around the movies. And Mass Effect, as big as it is, it's always revolved around the games. Star Trek has always revolved around its shows. And there hasn't been a real Star Trek television show, arguably since the end of Deep Space Nine. (laughs) Oh boy, oh boy. No, no, I mean, yes, they had Voyager, and there are parts of Voyager I like. And they had Enterprise, and that was definitely a television show that aired... um, (laughs) For 44 minutes a week. And <laughs> no, the fact they finally announced there's going to be a new Star Trek show after all these years. Finally. 
thank you. Yeah. Why is it taking this long? Why do I have to wait? Gimme, 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 gimme. And it's been delayed yet again. So it's going to be, in, it was supposed to be in early 2017. Now it's going to be mid-2017. I'm sure it'll be later. At the rate they're going and yeah. with some of the problems we've discussed with the changing in showrunners and the, it sounds like there are some issues with it. I'm nerve like late at night. I wonder if we're ever going to see it at all. But We'll just, see it. But we'll the, see it. Don't worry. But the announcement of it, that, yep, we're doing it. Star Trek, we're coming back. People are going to see those movies, so I guess we have that on like, really, you didn't know you had that audience? But okay, it's all right, all right. Now, to be fair, I also think they needed a break. Like you were saying, with Voyager and Enterprise, there were two shows that, at least in our opinions, were lesser Trek. I think it's more than our opinions. Fair like, enough. A lot of popular opinion, especially for Enterprise. Like, Enterprise the first Star Trek show to get canceled in a long time. Yes. Like, they did not intend for that to run, was it, three seasons? Four. Maybe four. They wanted it to be another long-running show. It did not get there. Yeah, I. but I think part of the problem was it, the show had been running since 1987 without stop. There had been some version of Star Trek going until, I think, 2005. That's almost 20 years straight of TV. That's a lot of story, especially for a sci-fi show that is uh, predicated on new, fresh ideas. By the time of Voyager and Enterprise, their ideas were, were stale. Absolutely. They were stale dated. We needed a break to generate more Star Trek ideas, I think. Yeah, but as anyone who's taken a break in a relationship can tell you, that's not a fun time. It's yeah. great when you get things to start back up again, because that's, that's the part you're waiting for. Right. I did, this, is, this is, by the way, is a description of my relationship with chocolate cake. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but also my relationship with Star Trek. And I... But new... have you had a break? I mean, how much... I stopped, saying... e- I stopped eating chocolate cake for like a year. Yeah, but you kept looking at the... worst year of my the... life. You kept looking at the pictures of the chocolate cake. You got chocolate cake scented candles. I saw it for sale in stores. Like, and I would look at it longingly over the aisles. But that's the same thing with Star Trek. It's like, we still had all the DVDs and the Blu-rays and books and stuff and comic books. Right, so... but it wasn't new. There was right. no new Star Trek. Like, yeah, I, I'll pop in an episode of Star Trek, whatever, usually next gen or DS9... All the time. I got some time to kill, or I'm doing something that's not using up most of my attention. Star Trek's on in the background. But to be excited about new Star Trek content. And, like, the the J.J. films, the Kelvin timeline, helps with some of that. Yeah. But, But again, they're not, like, they're big motion pictures, spectacles, and they're fine. I really like them. But they're not that, they don't have that Star Trek feel. And there's two or three hour, hour, two or three year gaps between them. Exactly. Which doesn't help either. Like... I want, I want to see fade up, exterior shot, a cool starship that I like, and then 44 minutes of crazy science fiction themed adventure. And it sounds like that's what we're going to get, finally, again. And I'm going to, rem- like, that announcement turn it didn't turn my life around, that's an exaggeration, but it made me very excited. So, uh, the next thing I'd like to talk about is uh, one of the, the best comic book series I read this year is Glitter Bomb by f- one-time Geek Top 5 guest Jim Zub and uh, with art by Jabril Morissette Fan. And uh, I, I can't list the creative team without including the writer of the backup essays for it, Holly Rachel Hughes. Describe to me backup essays. So, what a lot of sort of indie comics are doing these days in order to add value to their comics is they're including essays by people uh, other than the creative team in the the back part of the book so 
there was a comic, oh man, I can't, th like, think of sort of like Alan Moore in uh, Watchmen. He would, this is going years back, but at the end of every issue of Watchmen, there was two or three pages of material that sort of just added to the story of Watchmen. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? So in the recent years, there have been stories set in sort of like 1950s Los Angeles, for example. And so there were essays just about that time period written in it. Uh, another Zub series is called Wayward, and it's about Japan. And there's a person who writes essays about Japan in the, for the back matter of that. And those are all good, and they sort of add to the story and add some flavor and add some context. With this series, those backup essays add so much, it changes the feel of the series, I find. Hmm. So... The series is about a, a middle-aged actress in modern-day Los Angeles who's having a hard time getting work. She was on a Star Trek-esque TV series years ago and is sort of struggling to stay relevant and get work. And it's about the uh, disrespect that she gets. You know, the her agent is uh, basically wants to get rid of her because she's not getting work and looks bad to him. And, you know, the struggles that she's had in her life and... There's a sort of Lovecraftian twist to it where she gets a tentacle monster inside of her and it lashes out and kills these people who are disrespecting her. That would make it difficult to get work. Yeah, uh, but the backup essays are by this woman who had a somewhat brief Hollywood career and, you know, you hear about actresses and actors sort of flaming out and disappearing all the time, but this is about... A uh, woman who worked behind the scenes. She was uh, an, an production, uh, a production assistant. She worked to get sets done. Things like that. She was like a coordinator. And the egos and struggles and problems she had while she was in the industry. And they make the story, the, the main story, so much more real and so much more relevant. You know, how many stories have you seen about Hollywood where, you know, bad stuff happens. And at a certain point you sort of roll your eyes because you're like, well, it can't be that bad. And they all just seem sort of vaguely cliche. At least well, vaguely familiar. Vaguely We've seen a lot of people like, struggle in Hollywood. Yeah. Which, and honestly, it seems like a bit of navel-gazing coming from Hollywood. Right. But this, with this person's essays, I don't know. Just the way they're written, it reframes everything you'd read before. You know, this concept. It's this high-concept story with monsters and aliens and and uh people getting tentacles smashed through their heads and yet there are these stories about real life and real bad stuff that have happened to this woman and and her view of the industry and it just makes all that stuff more grounded it's it's i've never seen anything like i've never read anything like it where that stuff matters as much as the comic book itself hmm now, it's, it's interesting because a lot of people would take, you know, the addition of ancillary material and say, well, why wasn't that part of the main story? You know, the, with Final Fantasy XV, it, yeah, it's a much bigger story if you also watched the movie and the anime series and read the separate prologue came bundled with, like, that would be considered a bad thing. In this case, it's, it's, it is part of the story. You know, you can't buy the comic book without getting that information. But it's also not part of the story itself. It's almost like a framing narrative in that it doesn't directly affect the main story. It just sort of sets the stage. Although, since it comes at the end of the comic, it it clears the stage, if you will. I don't know how to describe it. But it's it, it just m makes it so much more meaningful. You know, it's not just another true Hollywood story. It's like this... 
it, she, the woman writing it, it all happened to her. It's very personal and you can feel how much it mattered to her and how much it still matters to her and has affected her entire life and, and these indignities she went through. And it makes you, it just adds to the main character who's going through all these indignities as well or similar indignities. And it's, it, it just makes it something where it makes it more real. That's, I keep saying, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but it, mm. it, it helps ground it so much and it makes it a more interesting read. And it also helps that uh, Jabril, the, the artist, he's this young guy, seems to, this is like his first big story, I think. And his art is so far ahead of where most artists are at that age or most comic book artists are. It's so detailed and so, it, but it's so precise. Yeah. You know, the, the, the design work of everything is, is consistent. Sometimes with young artists or, or people who are just getting into the business from panel to panel, there are changes and you sort of just get through it because you're more interested in the action that's coming. But in this, every panel is consistent and there's a consistent high quality to it. I, uh, I mean, it looks gorgeous and, yeah. it's, and it's distinctive and it's really got a style that helps contribute to the story. One of the advantages of comic books, like a really good comic book, the art is just as important as the dialogue. Definitely. And Glitterbombs is wonderful. Um, it's beautiful to look at. Yeah. Now, where are they in their run? So they, they, they're doing, uh, for now anyway, they're doing four-issue arcs, and the fourth right. issue just came out and, and finished, and so at some point in 2017, they'll do another four-issue story. And it's hard to say where they're going to go based on the end of, of this one. Right. But based on what's available now, like, like you know, if you're like the Netflix binge watcher kind of person and you want to get into this, like this is a good point because you can get yeah. an arc from, you know, from start to finish. You could read the whole thing in an afternoon and you'd be caught up and uh, you'd have to get the single issues right now. You could get them online on Comixology or you can go to your local comic book store. But uh, trade paperback is coming out, I believe, in March. Awesome. Yeah. Next thing on my list that I had that you want to remember, uh, this is going to come out of 2016. I feel like this is one of those Just Jesse things, but I am so delighted with the way Final Fantasy XV worked out. Um, it's a geek thing, and even in terms of geek things, it's kind of a niche thing, but Final Fantasy as video games were super important to a lot of people in our age group growing up, and then just fell off, like, fell off the wagon. And right. I, you know, I feel like there's a lot. It, 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 tie it back to this glitter bomb character was really popular for a while, but now just can't find work and can't fit <laughs> in and suffers all these indignities. And it really looked like that franchise was going away. And so, what was the last one before this that, in your opinion, anyway, really hit successfully? The last one I think that really hit was Final Fantasy X. And we were in, I think, grade school. I don't have it in front of me, but we were in grade school when Final Fantasy X came out. At Maybe, least high school. At least high school. Because um, these games only come out once every few years. I mean, and like, there are other you know, Final Fantasy, like the non-numbered titles. But they haven't been a big deal for a while. And it's kind of like when your favorite band breaks up. There's going to be no more music exactly like that music I like. There's other music, and it's just as good... But that specific thing I like to listen for is gone. But they somehow managed to pull it together. And the story is ridiculous. They were developing this for 10 years. It's way over budget. There's no way it'll ever make money. It, like, it could be the Beatles meets the Catholic Church meets the Marvel <laughs> Cinematic Universe. And they still wouldn't have the buy-in they need to make I would it play back. that game. Oh, so, uh, whatever it is. 
there's no way it'll succeed. Like, there's no way it'll succeed financially. But they finally came out with something, and against all odds, it's. I mean, it's fun to play, and it's a wonderful experience. And is the band back together to keep following that metaphor? No, but they've decided to do something else, and it's. And I'm really interested in that. What Maybe they're like, doing. is it sort of like instead of playing rock and roll now they're doing uh, EDM? I have no idea what EDM is. <laughs> Electric dance music? Sure. What, well, like, they, like, what was working before didn't work. They kept trying. It fell apart. So they decided to do something new. And it was a success. So I like it as a success story. Because I think it's a really fascinating way to look at just the way we digest interactive entertainment. The way it's marketed and the way it works. I like it on a personal level because the Final Fantasy games have always meant a lot to me. There's, I mean, half of my iPhone, for God's sake, like the albums on there are video game soundtracks and Final Fantasy and the one composer, Nobuo Yuimatsu, is on a lot of them. The new composer is Yoko Shimomura and she's fantastic and I'm really, like, I've been looking for other stuff she's done outside of the video game world because I was so in love with this soundtrack. Like, this, it's opened up a whole bunch of new doors and I think that's phenomenal. Is it one of the big takeaways from 2016? Probably not. Even most of the people listening to this podcast have probably not played this game, have maybe not played the other Final Fantasies, but I genuinely think that that's something that's worth investigating. MechWarrior is a great game, but I know it's not for everyone. When we were dating, my wife and I, she tried very heroically to get into <laughs> MechWarrior and Battletech, and she just couldn't do it. She she really wanted to because she really wanted to share that part of my life, but it's just not for her. Final this Final Fantasy, and I think especially this Final Fantasy could appeal to a lot of you. And I don't want—I mean, I'm not being paid by Sony or Square Enix. So I don't want to sound like a shill, but I really think this is something you should check out. Is it perfect? God no, absolutely, it's flawed. Like so many other forms of media have flaws, but it's a really uniquely done thing. And it's wonderful to me that it's back, and I think it could be even bigger. I think it's going that way. So uh, should we... I mean, I, based on how the Final Fantasy series works, each game is its own unique thing, but there have been exceptions. Like Final Fantasy X, they had Final Fantasy X-2, and, right. and other sort of ancillary things around that one game. Should we expect more stuff like that from Final Fantasy XV? I doubt it. Remember, Final Fantasy XV, when it was originally announced, was Final Fantasy XIII Versus, which is a stupid title, because they wanted to do that with Final Fantasy XIII. They wanted to make they wanted to make like a harmonized world, and you know, Final Fantasy XIII had Final Fantasy XIII II and XIII III, but none of them sold well. Mm. None of them did well. It's like they tried to stick their toe into that delicious shared universe water. That right. everyone's trying to do, and they kind of blew it. What they did with 15 is they cut all that stuff to tie it to 13. That's all gone. If you're a huge dork. I mean, even for us, if you're a huge dork, if you've heard the term Fabula Nova Crystallis. Nope. Was the, thi- was the umbrella that all these games were supposed to be under. That's gone. Okay. It did not sell. It did not go anywhere. Probably because no one could pronounce the dumb thing. But, no, I just no, I think that's gone. I think this is a standalone thing. And really, the story ends. I don't want to spoil anything, but there's no more adventures in that world with those characters. Okay, so they they finally got the band back together. They've made a new game, Final Fantasy XV, and it takes the Final Fantasy series in a whole new direction, and that's great. 
What does this mean for Final Fantasy 16? I expect there'll there'll be more games like this one where it's the string. Like, go listen to our earlier episode where I talked about it for more detail, but where it hybridizes sort of the Japanese RPG with a very traditional epic story and character and emotions mixed with a more Western role-playing game, video game approach, sort of the open-world, interactive environment. Mm. Those two pairing off against each other. And they managed to work it together like peanut butter and chocolate. Okay, so speaking of uh, a franchise that's getting back on its feet, Star Wars. Star Wars. It's a pretty Star Wars-heavy episode this week, so we're... Yeah, and again, and then, is this a 2016 thing? I would argue yes. Um, the the trophy belongs to 2015 with The Force Awakens. But I would argue that came out so late in the year that the the glow from Force Awakens yeah, shines really... into 2016. Yeah. It's the return of Star Wars is what we're going to remember from 2016. Definitely. Like, if Force Awakens was a bad movie, Star Wars would have ended. The, the franchise was not what it used to be a couple of years ago. A lot of people weren't uh, you know, the people have that were talking about finding new things to fill the void that Star Wars left. A lot of people were hoping Firefly would do that, uh, and that got blown up. And then Battlestar tried to do it. Like there was a, there was a Star Wars shaped hole in all of our lives, and the Force Awakens came out. And yes, it has its detractors because internet does, yeah. But you can't argue. I would use the word billions of people loved it. Yeah. It's a fantastic movie, reinvigorates all that love yeah. for Star Wars, and it also has created a new expanded universe. I mean, the expanded universe that included the novels and cartoons and, and all that stuff from before was good, and there were some real bright stars to it, but it also was a bit of a mess. It was a bit right. all over the map. Now they've got it under control. Yeah, there's a focus to it. Everything mm-hmm. feels more connected and more important and like you're actually reading or watching stuff that will have an impact on the greater story and even if it doesn't it's still controlled in such a way that you don't just end up with the crap like it's you don't just end up with lunch boxes like a, a wonderful example is been marvel's darth vader comics like all through it, it, all through 2016 they've been phenomenal i think there's 25 issues for the like from start to finish yeah, and it's so done. That would include stuff that started last year. Yeah, but but this year has been the like the show of it, and you know, there's a lot of those comic series now that would never have gotten off the ground if Force Awakens hadn't successfully bled new life into the series. Uh, there's also some others like Vader Down was like a crossover thing; it didn't really count. But the point being is that those are great comics, mm-hmm. and like a Darth Vader themed comic book. Could have been something that they just wrote off to some nobody just to get the quick cash in and could have been crap. And it has been before. We've had Darth Vader crap. These were great. Yeah. I mean, when you give it to Marvel and Disney to do, I mean, they're Marvel is owned by Disney, so they've got money and they want to make sure Star Wars stuff is the best so they can keep generating more money from it and more characters and, and make it a, a profitable thing. And that requires good material. It requires quality. So they paid top dollar. They got some of the best artists, some of the best writers, and it's not just the Darth Vader comic. The uh, the Star Wars main comic is also great. It's it has the, had some yeah. cool stuff in it. Yeah, the, the Poe Dameron comic just started, but like that's a blast. And it's just there's so much about that character that we want to investigate. Yeah, it just it's wonderful to have Star Wars back. I mean, and I recognize 
But Star Wars actually has a lot more in common with the Transformers than Star Trek in that the only reason Star Wars exists is to sell me stuff. Right. I know that. <laughs> but I don't mind because I love it. Like if it was crap, you know, I mean, Transformers are fun. I have an Optimus Prime toy, but a lot of Transformers material is just toy commercials. Yeah. That, and that's it. Star Wars, I love the qual- like the quality of that universe makes it a pl- like I love those characters. I love those stories. I love those places. I want to be there. I want to be part of that world. And it could be it could have been gone forever. I think it also helps in that distinction in that uh, Star Wars, all the people who are working on it now grew up with it and loved it and it inspired stories in them. I don't know that Transformers has necessarily done the same thing. No, it's, all it's inspired has is toy sales. Yeah. It doesn't have the same thing. There's a parallel universe very close to ours where The Force Awakens failed and Star Wars just went away. And really nothing... Like when Star Wars wasn't there, nothing really filled that exact shape. The adventure, the excitement, the wonder mm-hmm. of it all. Nothing. I mean, other stuff isn't bad, but it didn't quite fit that mold. It didn't, it didn't have the peg for that exact hole. I would argue the closest thing that came to it, to, for me anyway, was Mad Max Fury Road, where it had uh, the similar sense of adventure, but also the world building. You know, there's, but they haven't explored it on the scale that Star Wars has. I totally agree, hundred percent. But that's what the closest thing was for me, and I don't know that it, they ever will with the Mad Max verse or whatever you want to call it. And I don't know that they should. Star Wars is sort of unique in that, even in its first few scenes, there's so much going on on screen, and everyone seems to have a, a story that that you're you may never see, but you want to know more about, and. Star Trek doesn't have that. No, um, Star Trek's never had that. Yeah. There are other series where, you know, even Battlestar, where there's a lot of cool stuff going on, but characters where you're like, I don't know that that person has a particularly interesting story. And let's face it, not a fun place to be. Yeah. Like, I get that's what they're going for, but nobody wants to be on the Galactica. The people who were on the Galactica didn't want to be on the Galactica. Everybody on that show hated themselves and hated everyone else, and then they they either died or, like, everything everything about the show was over. All the cool stuff we saw in Force Awakens and now in Rogue One... I want to know more about all of those people. I want to know more about Jin. Yeah. I mean, she's the main character of that movie, but she didn't have that much screen time just because it was an ensemble cast. I want to know more about what her life was like. I want to know more about Chirrut Imwe, about the blind guy like, who is be- not a Jedi, but he believes in the Force like, as a religious thing. And he's kind of a clever, fun character. I want to oh, know more about so that. I want like just Star Wars is so compelling that way. And I remember 2016 of being the year it came back. Uh, the next thing on my list, <laughs> uh, so much on my list is I feel like I'm, I'm reading commercials and I apologize <laughs> for that. I'm really not getting paid by any of these people. Um, the announcement for the Nintendo Switch and by proxy the new Zelda game, the stuff for Breath of the Wild. Um, this overlaps a lot with my Final Fantasy argument about you know, an old friend who went away, about a band who broke up. Nintendo's been in a weird place. Their last console, like their current most modern console is the Wii U, and a lot of people don't know what that is. Yeah, do you have one? I do have one, one. but like it's, but people like when we're trying to sell it, is it it a different console than just the Wii? Like what is the, like they did not sell that thing well. And compared to the Playstations and Xboxes, which are these high powered, essentially half PC 
super hardcore gaming experiences. It never went anywhere. And Nintendo spent a lot of time... Like they, they run the handheld market, and they're selling all their Pokemon games, and that's fine. But it's been a long time since we were excited about a Nintendo product. Yeah, I think the last Nintendo uh, system I owned was the GameCube. Yeah. And that goes back quite a while. I've never... They, I've played the other, the Wii's, uh, and I've enjoyed them, but there's never been anything on there that's really compelled me to, to pick another one up. Which, how much of a switch is that? Yeah. Because when we were growing up, like, oh my god, Super Nintendo. I like that. How much of a switch, switch? is that? Right, uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I but mean... No, when, when a Super Nintendo came out, everyone needed a Super Nintendo. Oh my god, did you see the graphics in Star Fox? Remember the game had the Super FX chip to make it look super real? Like, when my like, when my parents bought me Star Fox for the holidays, we moved the Super Nintendo up to, like, the grown-up TV to see, like, the, the fancy new graphics. And, like, like, that's how big a deal it was. Right. That just went away. You know, and, for, and it was a slow burn. You know, the N64 was hard to program for it, but it still had good games on it. it and it was the one I wanted, you know. I wanted absolutely. the N64. I was willing to give him a shot with the GameCube. I had that for a while. Uh, it had seemed to me anyway to have even fewer memorable games, and and so I slowly transitioned to an Xbox guy. We all did. Yeah, we all transitioned. And it, it's, people tend to associate with growing up because like, well, Nintendo is for kids, and they, and then Xbox and PlayStation is for grown ups, or the Halos and the Call of Duties. And but when you think about it, when you invite people over. Like, you're nothing to do, and you're just like, hey, why don't we play a game? Like, everybody knows how to play Mario Kart. Right. You know, not everyone's going to want to play Halo with you. Tendo was always about having a wonderful time. The, the spectacle of modern video games outpaced them for a while. I also think they, they fell down a rabbit hole of trying to innovate in ways that just led to confusion. You know? The, yeah. No the... one could figure out what the motion controls were really about. Yeah. Or what, the, the the tablet for the Wii U exactly. was Even Nintendo never figured that out, because they never really used that tablet for anything. Then they released the Switch, and everybody, not just Nintendo dorks, but, like, the world is really excited. Like, that looks cool. That's something I want. Finally, their, their drive for innovation has hit on something. It's hit on gold, or at least yeah. it looks like it so the, far. Yeah, and again, and that's why I'm hesitant to put it on this list, because we don't know if it's going to work. Right. It might fail. But hell, it was a, a great commercial. It's a great commercial. But no, the concept, <laughs> the idea of unifying your mobile gaming and your home gaming into one device, of making it easy to move around, making it easy to play with other people, that's really important to me. How long have we been complaining about how hard it is to play video games with other people? Most of the time nowadays, that means sitting on a couch by yourself with a headset with your expensive video game, and your expensive video game console, and your expensive internet connection, and your expensive proprietary video game networking service, to talk to your buddy over the internet yeah. while you're playing the game, you're not even really hanging out with them. It's a very isolating experience. This thing, hey guys, you want to play this? Click, click, and you're off. And you're all together playing a thing. I'm so excited for this. It looks phenomenal. Mm -hmm. We don't know. It could blow. But I feel like this is going to be a huge hit. It's You want to change the, what we're doing a little bit and say, you know, Jesse's predictions for the success of 2017? I think this is a big deal for Nintendo, and I'm super excited about it. So the next thing on, on my list that I would like to talk about is Game of Thrones. Uh, if <clears throat> I remember correctly, this is the first year that the TV series has gone where the books have not gone before. 
I believe so. And it was, uh, you know, again, it's a, a step into the unknown for, for a fan like me who has read all the books and has watched the TV series. And, and watching the TV series, it was always somewhat comforting. I always knew what was going to happen. There were no big surprises. I was like, oh, well, that's going to happen. That's gonna... And it was enjoyable on sort of like uh, on a level where it was like a second viewing kind of, second time enjoying it. This was all brand new stuff. And I know a big complaint with the books, uh, one shared by me and I know shared by you, is that uh, the last two books, not a lot has happened. No. They are slow, they are a bit of a slog, and very little has changed from the beginning of book four to the end of book five. If this season of the TV show is any indication, the next book is going to be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would argue it's not, but yes, the se- this season of Game of Thrones, they finally said, okay, all that's in place, now let's do stuff with it. Yes. It took them five years to establish this current status quo, and by the end of the season, it was all shattered, and you, we know we're chugging towards a conclusion. There was huge battles and dramatic overture, like, all these plots that have been plotting, now the payoffs are hitting. Yeah. And it just... it's like you've been baking for six years and now you finally get to eat. Yeah. I mean, one of the big ones for me is like, is Arya. Arya was a really cool character in the first few seasons, the first couple of books. And then she goes to the other side of the world and starts learning how to be an assassin. Which I argue is a very clear indicator of where interesting things are happening in Game of Thrones. Whether it's in Westeros, whether it's in stupid, boring, nothing land. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, I I understand the importance of it, but man, it was a slog watching her deal with that or reading about it. At the end of this season, she's back in Westeros. She's kicking ass. She is... Slicing throats. It is a, a, a great return to form. Again, supporting my metaphor, you drag all these people who are stuck in stupid, boring, nothing land and bring them back to, like, dragons. The Dothraki. They're back. Yes. Like, nothing's even really happened with that yet, but they're back, and it's exciting. And they have that shot of, um, oh, what's his name, who plays Tyrion? Uh, uh, Peter Dinklage. Yeah, Peter Dinklage saying, I can't believe this is finally happening. It's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I yeah. know how you feel, man. <laughs> finally, the dragons, finally. Oh, how long is it since the end of season one? Let's do something cool with the dragons. Yes. They're dragons. Can't wait. Uh, you know, another thing, Cersei, who had spent a couple of seasons under people's thumbs. Oh, yeah, Cersei's back. She's back. You know, she's... Spoiler, she... Oh, we, yeah, we've been spoiling. She uh, loses her last child, and at this point, like, she was devastated about the first two. At this point, she's like, I don't even care anymore. Yeah, <laughs> she's, like, she, over it. Well, and that was her character. All she, like, she was... All she had was that she wanted to do this for her children. And, which could be argued as just a reflection of herself, but... That's all she... Now, they're gone, and it's like, screw it. Screw yeah. everybody. And, and man, did you screw over the Sparrow... Is Sparrows? Yeah. yeah. Oh, my oh, God. So, so, we wanted that to happen for... So, as but, much as we don't like Cersei, screw that guy. Yeah, and... Uh, but the, the biggest thing in that was, like, Marjorie had these things in motion. I oh, was like, yeah. oh, she's gonna do something. But it turns out she's no Cersei. She's blown up. I was yeah. like... I, I was like, is she... Is she really dead? Like, it, it took me completely by surprise. She was like the Captain Jellico. It's like, yeah. yeah, she's a good captain, but <laughs> make room. Yeah. <laughs> so, it was uh, a hell of a season, and, you know, even though 
I, I, assuming the books even follow uh, a blueprint of this, and don't do the exact same thing, but are similar, I'm really looking forward to reading it, just to to get another dip and get it a, a, a bit more fleshed out. You know, the books have always been good or bad at, at drawing these yeah. things out and making them a bit more complicated, I guess. More, way more complicated than they need to be. There's characters in the books who do nothing, like who appear, contribute, then get killed, and nothing in the world has changed. And you've learned everything about them and their family and their relatives yep. and their... And what they're wearing. Yeah, like, what and, they're eating, ugh. what their banner looks like. Which would be terrible if that was the start of the story. The fact that we already have all this story happening that we haven't gotten into. I just, I mean, I get it. George R. R. Martin is a geek icon right now, but I, I mean, dude's no Frank Herbert. <laughs> I, he's, he's, I mean, he's kind of a J.R.R. Tolkien, I guess, but even Tolkien managed to keep it pretty. Like, and then something happened, and then something happened, and then something happened. <laughs> That's how stories work. So I know he's lost. Uh, he's lost. Are you going to read the next book? I am probably not going to read the next book. Okay. I'm not. It's not as extreme as I'm making it sound. But I've just, I feel like that series is better presented on television than it is in the books. Fair enough. It's, it is fun to watch. I think it's a much better way to digest all that material. And part of being on the screen is that they get to cut out a lot of the crap. I think that's the best way to experience it. You know, it's the fight club thing. That this presentation on screen is better than the presentation on the page. It's rare, but it happens. Fair enough. That is true. All right, uh, what's your next uh, item? And my, the last item on my list, the thing I'm going to remember from 2016, is the Mass Effect hype. And once again... I know. And once again, it's something <laughs> that takes place in the future. It's something to, to make you want to get out of 2016 even faster. Yeah, which, is, again, is something I think a lot of people share. Um, there's not much to say about this in the sense of what it is. We've talked about it in the last few of the, like the November 7 Day episode and the like. But Mass Effect is one of those shared universes that means a lot to both of us. And I think it means a lot to the geek community at large. And they sort of did the same thing, I mean, on a smaller scale, the same thing that Star Trek did, where they took a break. Mm-hmm. They, but on a much smaller scale. But the same thing, like, the, you know, the material, it's, you know, they had three games. Yeah. And some ancillary novels and comic books and, and like, stuff. an app or something. Yeah. Um, and they, but they told a story from start to finish, and then they stopped. And it was a wonderful story. And wonderful world. Wonderful characters. A rich Star Wars-esque universe where there's so many characters and so many stories that are happening off the main screen. You just want to learn more. Yeah. Honestly, I feel like we are underserved by some of that. The way that everybody in the Moss Eisley Cantina has a short story now because just people just love that thing about Star Wars. Yeah. I could do everyone on the Citadel. Yeah. But no, like, I would like to read a book like from the Turian's perspective. It's even more about that. I would like to learn. I would like to re- see about like the Krogan genophage, right? About that era. There's so much. These are such buzzwords that people who don't play Mass Effect know nothing about. I apologize, <laughs> but they haven't explored the world as much as we would like. So having just zero material for a while is is just this big void. And they've been very careful when talking about. They're like, yes, we're working on a new game, and that's all we heard for months. But one year they released. It was like someone talking about how rich the world was over some concept art. Yeah. It's like, that's, come on, man. That is not not what we're looking for. It, that is a case of the studio went to him and said, we have millions of customers who want something from Mass Effect. Can you please give us something for the holiday season? 
it's coming out next year, showing, and really, again, showing off the gameplay was a big thing, saying that, yes, it's real, it's not just vaporware, it's not just talk, which happens a lot these, not even just in video games, but even in television, where people will say, yeah, we're making this, and I'll never hear anything about it, and it ends up in development hell. Yeah. The Battletech movie is like that. <laughs> Somebody owns the rights, and it's just impossible for it to get funding. That will never happen. What's conflicting here is that we've spent a lot of time, even in this single episode, talking about big fictional universes that mean a lot to us. Star Trek, Star Wars, Battletech for me. If you, like Now it's how do you distinguish Mass Effect? I feel like I'm doing it a disservice by like putting it on the same shelf as all this other stuff and it's fading away. But the, the thing that sets it apart is that it's a video game. So you, in any one instance of it, you get at least 40 hours of enjoyment out of it and that's only if you play it once. There's so many side quests. There's you are more personally involved, so mm-hmm. it's harder to talk about it with people who haven't played it because it's not the same. Like if you try to describe the universe to someone who hasn't played the game, it's not going to mean as much. Whereas with Star Wars, Star Trek, it's a bit more because it's a more passive experience. It's a bit easier to describe. But unless you're playing the game and using the powers and shooting the guns. And talking to the people yeah, and, and making, making the decisions. Choices. And like, who do you save? Who do you leave behind? How does that affect this group of people? How does that affect this goal that you're oriented to? Do you do bad things for a good cause? Do you, you know, support a bad cause? Do you do good things that might reflect negatively, but it's the right thing to do? So much of that comes in, and because there's so many different ways to do it, Every story is different, even through the same events. And And that's such a wonderful, unique thing that only video games as a form of interactive entertainment can do. And Mass Effect really is the standout. If you play Call of Duty, you're always going to shoot the bad guy. But, But, you know, your experience with Mass Effect is distinct from my experience. Absolutely. That's Mass Effect's strongest point. And the fact that there's finally going to be a new one coming is a big deal. Okay, so enough about that. I could go on for Mass Effect forever. <laughs> the last thing on my list is Deadpool. Deadpool. Yes. Deadpool was 2016. And it, it was it was actually Valentine's Day 2016. Beautiful occasion for what is the raunchiest, grossest, most over-the-top superhero movie I've ever seen. Uh, but also, the first superhero movie that I can think of like, a real honest-to-God superhero movie that's gotten a lot of big Golden Globes attention. Yeah. Now, I mean, even in the movie, they go out of the way of saying it's not really a superhero movie. I would argue that it is. It's Mm -hmm. just it doesn't fall into what we've sort of built as a superhero archetype or superhero genre. Which is one of the things that makes it so great. Yeah. Beat of its own drum. Yeah. And it it needs... it, It could only have come out now after we've had so many superhero movies because... It plays on your expectations, and you can't do that if if this was the first movie that came out. You no one would have expectations. So, it's hilarious, it's disgusting, and it's also incredibly faithful to the source material. Yeah, it's joyfully irreverent to the world, but with exactly what the material is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. The characters are nuts, and they did such a good job of adapting that to the screen. Like, a lot of those... Like, one of the common jokes about him being nuts is when he argues with the narrator. Like, he argues with the yellow boxes yeah. in, in the comic book. Like, that, like to switch that into a movie universe... So they have him, like, addressing the audience a lot. But he also comments on, like, the cuts. 
Yeah. And things There's that... a part where where he's he sets up a flashback and he breaks the fourth wall to set up a flashback and then within the flashback he breaks the fourth wall and then he comments on how he's breaking the fourth wall after having broken the fourth wall. It's it's hilarious and uh, you know, I think describing like this makes it sound like you need a film degree to understand the jokes, but it's so quick and so witty. Ah, love it. Yeah, it's it's so enjoyable. Mm-hmm. I mean, if anything, it's, I mean, like, don't get me wrong, I really like that it, it got the full R. Yes. Like, I think that's very necessary for the material, but it's just a shame that R-rated movies generally don't have as wide an audience, because you can't always show them to 12-year-old kids. And, and I feel like more people need to see Deadpool. But the, the thing, the crazy thing about it is, I think it's the highest grossing movie in the R. X-Men franchise. Oh, absolutely, yeah, it made a fortune. And Ryan Reynolds is cock of the walk. Like he, you know, he put it much more <laughs> R-rated, R-rated than I can. Um, but yeah, it's uh, everyone. Like he, no one thought he could make this movie. Yeah, uh, people were actively out to stop this movie from being made. I mean, the the fact that they put him as Deadpool into the first Wolverine movie and it blew was, it. It was terrible. Like he was funny in his scenes where he could talk and then they sewed his mouth shut and gave him powers that Deadpool's never had. It's like they went out uh, of their way to uh, negate the character. Who was as a, a comic book fan, it was really frustrating to watch. And to have I, him completely redeem it in one movie is amazing. Overwhelming. And they also brought in Colossus, and uh, Colossus has been in the other X-Men movies, but mostly just as a side character, or like as a cameo. He barely has any dialogue. In this, he has... Uh, he, he steals every scene he's yeah. in. He's great. Steals? Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> no, yeah, as he makes an incredible straight man. Mm-hmm. Um, and even that, like when you look at that interpretation of those characters... Like, if you watch the X-Men movies, the X-Men don't really come off as goody two-shoes, per se, but compared to Deadpool. So seeing the X-Men from yeah. Deadpool's perspective, <laughs> and them all being sort of these wussy do-gooders, <laughs> it comes across so well. And they're unapologetic about it. Colossus knows that, yeah. in this movie anyway, he knows that he's a square. And he's okay with it. Yeah, and he support, he's and proud of it. Yeah, he's trying to convert Deadpool to be a square like him. Ah, so, so funny. And it just, it was a total blast. And it also speaks to Ryan Reynolds, who, this is him at his best. When he is let off the leash and it can be hilarious. And he hasn't had many opportunities to do that in recent years. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is me speaking as too much of a comic book fan, but the other thing that the lesson that needs to be taken from this is if you're going to take a character and make a movie of them, be true to that character. Absolutely. Follow the source material. I mean, there's a reason, like, why why buy the rights to make a movie of these characters if you're just going to completely change them, you know? Which, to be fair, is pretty limited to that crappy Wolverine movie. Like, the X-Men... Mostly match the X Men from the comic, with the exception of Mystique. Yeah. They're pretty close. I don't, you know, and the don't Aven- get me started. And the Avengers are pretty close. Definitely, Marvel does it better than anyone. Than anyone. But you know the stuff in the Suicide Squad and yeah. and some of the Batman Superman. I mean, anything in the the Superman movies recently, Man of Steel, Batman versus Superman. 
that is not my Superman. The Fantastic Four movie, another prime example where they got the rights to these characters and then had no idea what to do with yeah. them and just did whatever they wanted without actually looking at the source material. Yeah, if the Fantastic Four weren't in that movie, if it was just like a weird science fiction, like scientists out of control kind of movie... It still would, in this case, it still would have been a lousy movie, but it would have been an interesting experiment. Yeah. But as a reflection of those characters... It was a slap in the face. Yeah. Not, e- not even a failure to be those characters, but a deliberate attempt to undermine them, mm-hmm. to do something different. If you want to do something different, go do something different. If you want to make a Fantastic Four movie, there are reasons why people like the Fantastic Four. That's what you put on the screen. Deadpool took the character found everything people loved about it, had to adjust some of it to suit the screen, but kept the exact same feeling, did it perfectly. What a wonderful piece of filmmaking. So, on that note, that is the end of Geek Top 5 for 2016. 2016 was an interesting year, um, but if nothing else, you know, the last thing we should probably have on both our lists is it brought us Geek Top 5. Clearly, that should be <laughs> at the top of everyone's And that's list. what I hope we all remember it for. <laughs> now, we're going to be taking a little bit of a break for the holidays. Um, family and friends and, you know, people who have them are going to be spending them with that. We're going to spend them with PlayStations. <laughs> no, no, we're good. And we will be back uh, in January. We'll be debuting the first episode of Geek Top 5 Season 2 on January 8th. I'll still be running on our Sunday, every other week release schedule. So we will talk to you then. Until then, hope you have a happy festival of winter, holiday, whatever it is that you do, don't do, or worst case scenario, just hope you have a good rest of 2016. And while we won't have new episodes coming up, we will still be posting stuff on the Facebook page, and uh, there is a perfect place for you to comment and let us know what you think. It's uh, facebook.com slash geektop5. You can also email us at geektop5 at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at geektop5. We would thank our special guests, but they're ourselves. But as always, we want to thank our, our crew, Stella Simeonova, Ben Sound from bensound.com, and of course all of you who tune into the show. We really appreciate it. We really love having the opportunity to do this, and that's all because of you guys. Geek Top 5, happy holidays, happy new year. We'll see you in 2017.